The Guardian. It is constructive to say that if Washington operates as usual and can't get anything done, let's at least avert uh, Armageddon. Could the US government really just stop paying its bills? I'm Aditya Chakraborty, and this is the Business Podcast. Unless Democrats and Republicans can come up with a deal by the 2nd of August, President Obama's government will literally run out of money. Federal employees won't get their payslips. Social security checks will go unpaid. There'll be mayhem in the world's markets. And time is running out. In his latest novel, Gary Steingart imagined a US sovereign default, leading to riots on the streets of New York. We'll hear from Gary a bit later. So what's at stake in the debt ceiling talks? Dean Baker is the co-director of the Centre for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. If they don't get a deal on the on the uh, debt ceiling, then you know the U.S. will fairly quickly end up defaulting on its debt. I mean, we can't pay its bills. There there will be an issue that you could prioritize some payments rather than others. But basically, any money that's appropriated by Congress does create a legal obligation. So if we decide not to pay contractors or we decide not to pay Social Security benefits, whatever it might be. That group can go to court and seize assets. So you're pretty quickly in a situation where we are defaulting on the debt no matter what happens. So that would shake the world financial system much more than Lehman did, the collapse of Lehman back in September of 08. So it'd be a serious matter. I don't think there's any doubt about it. You were saying it'd be bigger than Lehman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if there were a case where a situation where you couldn't treat U.S. government debt as being worth 100 cents on the dollar, that's definitely more serious than, than the sort of downturn, the sort of uh, freeze-up we saw with Lehman, but probably uh, order of magnitude greater. Dean Bake there. Well, I'm joined in studio by The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, and downline from Washington by Richard Adams. Larry, let's begin with you. Bigger than Lehman, can anything really top that? In a way, it would be. I don't think it, in one sense, I don't think it would be as bad as Lehman because it wouldn't be a shock. I mean, the thing about Lehman's was it came as a bolt from the blue. It was what's known as a black swan. This would be a white swan in that everybody has seen it coming. Um, so I, I don't think it would come as that sort of seismic shock to the system. And the second point, I suppose, is it's not going to happen. I mean, I fully expect the debt ceiling to be raised because I don't really think the Republicans are prepared to shut down the government and tip the US and global economy back into recession they will take this take these talks to the brink and then walk away i suspect richard adams our guardian correspondent from down under you're there to explain to us the, the intricacies of the system how on earth is it that washington has a debt ceiling well it's a piece of legislation passed by congress uh, as a result of an, an act passed by congress which sets a, a total limit on the amount of debt that the u.s can issue and and normally this is uncontroversial just because, you know, as time passes, the debt increases and uh, the debt ceiling is raised. And and it's one of those things that's not really honoured for the idea. The idea was the Conservatives wanted to put a cap on government borrowing, but it never really worked out that way. But now uh, it's come back to haunt the Obama administration. I mean, George W. Bush, for example, in the eight years he was president, he raised the debt ceiling or he he, um, got congressional approval to raise the debt ceiling seven times, and it was really ever controversial. And during that time, he increased the the amount of uh, U.S. government debt issuance by 90%. So really, and Ronald Reagan, I mean, similarly. So, you know, the, the backstory is that this is sort of generally a sort of technical issue. But this time, because of 
politics, uh, it, it's become uh, it's become much more difficult for for the White House. But if we know, Richard, that this is uh, a traditional game of political horse trading, what, what are the horses that are being fought over at the moment? What what's what what do the Republicans actually want? Well, that's an interesting question because the Republican Party is is split into different camps about what they want. I mean, the main thing is they're all looking over their shoulder at the Tea Party and and uh, conservatives in that regard. And so they don't want to be seen to be allowing the government to increase the the budget deficit or the debt overall to a great extent. So they're demanding that there be budget cuts to compensate so that they can say, oh, well, we cut the budget. Okay, we did uh, allow the debt ceilings to go up, but we've also got budget cuts and we've got a deal out of this. And that's the, the horse trading that's underway. And And some of the more red meat members of the Republican Party such as Michelle Bachman, for example, you know, are flatly opposed to any increase in the debt ceiling because they say this is the only way to make Washington understand that you know it can't mortgage our future and so forth. Larry, you began this segment by, by saying that you thought a deal was likely. Just how close to the wire do you think we're likely to get? Well, pretty close to the deadline, I should think. I mean, that's the way these negotiations happen. I, I'd have thought that the Republicans will, will keep this going for, for quite a long time. And in the end, they will back down because, I mean, remember what happened in the 1990s when um, Newt Gingrich shut down the government under Bill Clinton. It's the best thing that ever happened to Clinton, actually. Clinton's popularity soared. Made him look like a statesman exactly, rather than exactly. a politician. It made the Republicans look incredibly partisan and, and, you know, shutting down the government was not a big a big vote winner for the Republicans. And I don't think actually opposing the, the race in the debt ceiling would be a big vote winner for the Republicans this time either, particularly if it had widespread economic ramifications, which it would do. I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, the ratings agencies are circling around the US economy anyway. I mean, there's, there's a threat there of a debt, of a credit downgrade in the US, and that may happen even if the debt ceiling is raised. I mean, it's, there are people who think that the S&P and Moody's and Fitch may well downgrade the US credit rating even if the debt ceiling is raised so you know th- these are very high stakes they're playing for here I mean that, that's, that's where Dean is right I mean you've got you know two big potential crises happening in the global economy at the same time you've got the European debt crisis and you've got the American debt ceiling crisis if either one of those two things went badly wrong which they might well do that would be an incredibly serious state of affairs if both of them went wrong at the same time which at the moment looks you know entirely plausible you would have one heck of a crisis going on out there you know you would have a massive firestorm in u.s and u.s and europe world's two biggest power blocks in the global economy both in crisis at the same time i mean the consequence of that would be absolutely astronomical richard what's your take on the likelihood of an agreement well i think given the the time it takes for things to happen here in terms of getting things through congress we really need to see something happen by the weekend, uh, something serious. I mean, it looks today, I, we've had a few false dawns on this, but it looks today that the Senate seems to have taken over leadership of this, which is often the case in, the, in these sorts of crises. And we've had a meeting of about 50 senators today talking about a plan being cooked up by, between uh, what was called the Gang of Six, which was a group of senators, and, and with elements of the uh, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and and the Demo- his Democrat counterpart, Harry Reid. Uh, they're talking about, about a $3 trillion savings spread over 10 years. And now the Senate is more likely to come to sense, and, and uh, something may come out of this. So I, but on the other hand... 
I, 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 there is an element of sleepwalking about this in American politics in general. Uh, I mean, I think uh, a lot of people don't really understand the seriousness of it. And, one, and you sort of assume that, well, they have to come to some sort of arrangement. They have to fix this. But there's a sort of sort of air of unreality about Republican politics at the moment, especially with the presidential nomination contest. And I, I, I do fear that, that the wheels could come off. I mean, I think it's a small possibility, but it's a possibility nonetheless. Well, it's all very well blaming the politicians, but they don't operate in a vacuum. Hadley Freeman's based in New York for The Guardian, and she sees a worryingly polarised political culture developing. What do we have? We have the politicians and the press saying... Oh, you average people, you're not smart enough to be a part of the solution. Don't listen to them. Listen to the founders. The interesting thing about this whole debt ceiling debate is that it really reflects uh, how polarized the politics are in America. It's like almost a sort of toxic example of it in that both sides are seeming to be intractable, really. And the media is reflecting that in their extreme coverage of it. Interestingly, the American public, according to a poll that was out today, is veering more towards Obama and thinking that he's coming out better than the Republicans. But certainly the coverage on, say, you know, everyone's favorite Republican TV network here at Fox News um, are trying to depict Obama as obsessed with uh, obsessed with tax raises. That's their favorite phrase, obsessed with tax raises. And the truth is, I think we're reaching what John Stewart called on the Daily Show last night, the national bullshit ceiling at this point. People are talking a lot of rubbish. We thought we had this guy ready to give us everything we wanted, including Obama's re-election. And then all of a sudden, bam, a total stop and even a reversal. So Obama's out there pushing this magic August 2nd deadline to get this thing done. That's because Ramadan starts August 1st. And it's, uh... <laughs> well, it does. It's, conf- it's confusing the public, but it's also boring the public eventually. Because the reaction to this whole debate has been so extreme, it's kind of almost turned off the public and made them both bored and also made them fed up and, and not trusting the media, not trusting the depiction of this debate, really. Hadley Freeman there from New York. So what are people saying? As Hadley said, a recent poll showed that 67% of Americans support Obama's approach of tax rises and spending cuts. Here's what some of them told CNN. I don't know whether it's talk radio or all these, you know, sort of liberal or conservative talk shows just getting everybody fired up, but we, I think we used to be able to work together better. When push comes to sub, this isn't a game of chicken. This is... This is, this is actually something that will happen. Uh, I understand that it's difficult. My job's very difficult. Uh, I don't have the option of walking out of a meeting. Uh, that would be considered uh, completely inappropriate. If I have a credit card with a certain limit and I'm overspending, the answer is not to increase my spending limit. Richard Adams, um, you have a situation in which the American economy is having a very, very weak recovery. They're still very high. Nearly one in 10 Americans are out of a job. And yet you have this deep resistance to any further use of government state power uh, to boost the economy. Why is that? Well, it's a consequence of the political climate uh, as, as much as everything else, I would say. Uh, I mean, you have a situation where a lot of people are worried about this, the size of the U.S. government debt. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, um, U.S. government debt has not been historically high, but it is now. And that worries a lot of people. There's a genuine concern about that. And the 2010 uh, midterm elections gave a lot of sucker to Republicans 
who who were banging on about this. Now, I, I would say that was more a symptom of the weakness of the economy that you just mentioned, rather than any particular agreement with the with the Republican diagnosis. I mean, even now they're talking about paying for increasing the debt ceiling by cutting taxes, because of course, as we all know, tax cuts lead to higher revenues. So, uh, I mean. There is an air of unreality, which uh, I, I do worry that they're going to sleepwalk into a disaster here. And, and I think um, when you when you see the polls that say a majority of people actually just want a deal, even if they don't agree with the deal, you think that this has got to help uh, Obama and the Democrats. And the Republicans realize that they're all, they, they are aware of, of what happened in 94. But it's whether or not they can keep a leash on on their own attack dogs. That's the problem. They may have they may have got out of hand already. So if uh, I take Larry Hadley and you put you all together, there seems to be a general consensus that you think a deal will be done on the debt ceiling. But what does this argument tell us about the kind of arguments the Republicans are going to be taking into next year's presidential campaign about the economy? Well, I mean, it's all going to be all about the economy at this point. I mean, it's you know, it's it's not looking good for Obama. If he's going to run on uh, his economic record, then it's pretty patchy, I'm afraid. And for whatever reasons, I mean, there are good reasons why it's in this case. Now, he'll, if he can pin the blame for that on the Republicans, which I think would be uh, a valid tactic, then, you know, he may get away with it. But when you've got a, a populist like Rick Perry running as a Republican candidate, it's going to be very difficult for him because Perry can point to Texas and say, well, I created all these jobs, you know. So, yeah, the worse the economy is, the worse it is for Obama. No, no, pre- no president has actually won re-election with, uh, since the war with unemployment this high. I think that the last president to win re-election with unemployment above 7.5% was Roosevelt in 1936. I think that's, that's, that's the, statistic, the, the, the stat that will be uh, preying on Obama for the next 12 months, and you know, he really needs to get unemployment down in the States pretty quickly, I think, because it's a very potent symbol over there where the you know, w- welfare safety net is much, much weaker than it is in Europe. You know, having 9% plus of, of working people uh, on the dole is serious political um, headwind for Obama to confront, I think. Richard, how good a job do you think the Democrats have done in presenting their arguments for using government, the government balance sheet? Well, the problem is it's a, it's a, when you're talking about a complicated issue like debt ceilings and budgets, it becomes, it becomes very difficult. I think the temptation is to say they've not done a very good job. But then when the economy is this bad, as Larry says... It's hard to, you know, it's hard to make, it's hard to make that case because you've already, uh, you're already in such a difficult position to begin with. I mean, yes, they could do a better job. I and mean, Timothy Geithner, as Treasury Secretary, for example, I think has been very poor in his public presentation, regardless of what he does behind the scenes. Uh, and I mean, he should be the one out there making this case uh, for the Democrats and for the for the administration, but he seems unable to. Uh, and it's asking a lot for Obama to have to do this and everything else. Larry, let's just finish by thinking about the markets for a second. Let's take your line. And so the expected deal is done and the US gets permission to borrow another $4 trillion on top of the current debt ceiling of $14 trillion. At what point do investors in US bonds, whether they are in Tokyo or Beijing or Berlin, at what point do they start worrying about, about sovereign debt crises in America? Well, I think they're already worried about it. I mean, you know, um, if you think about what's happening in Europe, you've got the Chinese government coming over here saying that they're actually prepared to buy Greek bonds. Um, and 
you know, and help the Greeks out of their predicament. Now, why are the, why are the Chinese doing that? Well, because they want an alternative place to put their money. I mean, they don't want to have all their eggs in the American basket. So they would quite like the single currency to survive. And that, if helping the helping the Greeks out is is part, you know, is is very very small amount of the Chinese surplus, and, and, and it makes sense for them to do that. So, I mean, I think that if, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a big investor on the global stage, then you do want to diversify your portfolio. You'd be you'd be very very dumb to put all your money into US T-bonds in the, in the current environment. You've got a very slow-moving economy. You've got a massive overhang from the housing crisis. You've got 9% unemployment. You've got budget deficits that are going through the roof. You've got political deadlock in Washington. That, to me, is not a particularly bull bull signal for, for, for investors. So, you know, the potential the potential here for, for, for an almighty crisis in the US is very, very big. And, and, and they, as I say, it may well get downgraded by the rating agencies anyway. So I think that, you know, People should be worried about what's going on in the US because, you know, you've seen a colossal stimulus over there. You know, interest rates are zero. You've had two lots of quantitative easing. You've seen the budget deficit balloon. And yet the recovery is one of the weakest they've seen. Certainly, it's certainly the weakest recovery from a recession that they've seen since the Second World War. That, I think, spells, you know, long term trouble. So a nightmare scenario of sovereign default and political upheaval. Well, it all looks eerily familiar to readers of the novelist Gary Steingart. His latest book, Super Sad True Love Story, is set in the near future, with the US government on the brink of collapse and the country in economic meltdown. We asked Gary if, having imagined this bleak future, he saw it coming true. A lot of this is political and economic, uh, the rise of China and India, but a lot of this is just natural gravity pulling down a a country and an empire, some would say, that, that rose so quickly into such unprecedented heights. And when you get this far so quickly, you're, there's going oh, to be a decline. And the question is, what kind of a landing do we expect? I mean, do we anticipate a kind of Soviet circa 1991 complete collapse? That's very doubtful. Or is this a sort of gradual transition from, say, the Dutch mercantile empire into the wonderfully small bike riding stone country we know as Holland today. So what I'm hoping for is a very gentle glide toward being second or third place. But Americans don't want to be second or third place. Um, Much like Russia, this country has a conception of itself as being granted by God uh, sort of the the title of the world's uh, leading economic and cultural empire. And uh, I think this creates psychological difficulties for people once they realize that that may not be the case 10, 20 years from now, if it's the case even now. So do you think Americans have even accepted that that's a possibility? Is that what the book's trying to explore? Well, it's not just my book. I think a lot of, a lot of media are trying to tell Americans not to expect you know, that everything's going to be great from here on in. You know, I think the the most instructive thing an American can do is fly to Beijing's capital airport, this probably the largest structure on the planet right now, and then fly back from that incredible terminal to Newark's Newark International Airport in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, and the, the the sensation is one of sort of taking off from uh, I don't know from. Uh, Oh, I shouldn't say Heathrow, that's not so great either. Taking off from Frankfurt and landing in Burkina Faso or something like that. So, I mean, I think the first thing we need to do to restore our pride is uh, knock down Newark Airport and try to build a, a new gateway to America. 
you were born in the Soviet Union and you watched that implode after moving to the States. Are you seeing similarities now in the decline of another empire? Well, the, the, the huge difference was that the Soviet Union was a, a horrific country with very few prospects. Uh, it, it was built on repression and it survived because of repression. And America is obviously a very different country than that. But certain telltale signs of a very important large country in distress, I think, are evident. One is uh, growing xenophobia, for example. Uh, in both countries, as the end was near, nationalist tension began to rise. In America, we can see it in the ridiculous anti-immigration laws being passed in states like Arizona, which do nothing but harm America's image and America's economy, because without a steady influx of young immigrants, uh, this country will face probably the same future as Southern Europe, which is finding itself unable to sustain its economies because of its graying populations. Uh, another thing is the, the ridiculous uh, over-patriotism, this constant feeling of having of insecurity making us constantly put out larger and larger flags. I was driving through Ohio and I saw a flag, an American flag the size of a building, you know, flying over a, a car dealership, uh, a Honda car dealership, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't even an American car dealership. Uh, and the size of that flag didn't say to me, I'm, I'm proud of my country. It said, I'm scared. I'm scared of the future. Gary Steingart there, facing top producer Phil Maynard. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Leave your thoughts on this week's podcast on our blog. Follow the showdown talks in Washington on our website, guardian.co.uk forward slash business. And believe it or not, we want to hear what you think. Yes, you think about our podcast more generally. If you'd like to take part in our survey, please email guardian.business.podcast at gmail.com and we'll get back to you, it says here. My thanks to Larry Elliott, Richard Adams, Hadley Freeman and Dean Baker. To produce was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.